Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back for part two of talking about helmets. Last time, we had a lot of fun. We, we talked about caterpillars piling up their old exoskeleton heads on top of their current heads. We talked about uh, helmets from the ancient Greek world. We talked about horned helmets and where those uh, motifs came from, the association with Vikings. And, and we had so much more, and we're back today. Yeah, this episode is going to be more of a... Um, a, a selection of various helmets and helmet traditions uh, from different parts of the world. Um, we, we are going to get into samurai armor uh, a bit more. We t- we very briefly mentioned it in the first episode, and I figured it it was deserving of a deeper dive. Uh, but before we get into that, we're going to touch on just a really bizarre helmet from uh, European tradition. Yeah, this is one that we were sort of planning on talking about last time, but I guess we ran out of time. Uh, but if if you're, if you're talking about horned helmets and you're just looking around for historical examples worth mentioning, you are bound to come across one that is, I would say, literally unbelievable. And I mean literally unbelievable in the correct use of the word literally, because when you see it, you will be inclined to think there is no way this is actually an early 16th century artifact. This is a prop from a Terry Gilliam movie. Oh, absolutely. I had the exact same response when I first came across it. Because if you if you start researching helmets, and if you start looking on uh, using image searches to find examples, you find a lot of of creative energy that has gone into the uh, creation of fictional helmets and uh, sort of artistic um, twists on fictional helmets and sci-fi helmets, everything. You have to do a fair amount of um, of digging around to make sure that what you're looking at is something from the real world. And when I looked at this, this is just this is just too weird. I figured this is some bizarre um, art uh, experiment here. There's no way that this was an actual helm from European history. Well, it is, I think, a bizarre art experiment, but it's like, you know, 500 years old. <laughs> uh, so no, it's not from a Terry Gilliam movie. It's not from the set of legend. This is a helmet that is known as the horned helmet of the English king Henry VIII. It is astonishingly bizarre. It is definitely worth actually looking up an image of if uh, you have a chance, but I am going to describe it if you're not in a place where you can look it up right now. So you can read about this artifact and see close-up photos at the website for the British Royal Armouries Collection in Leeds. This helmet was commissioned as part of an armor set in 1511 by then Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I, and it was given as a gift to King Henry. So Henry VIII, when he's a young man, he's given this this helmet and this suit of armor as a gift. But I'm wondering what a gift like this was supposed to signify, given its visual features. So first of all, it's a helmet that's made of steel. It's very close-fitting. It's got features and a couple of other metals. It's got a pair of corkscrew ram's horns made of sheet iron. And if you're trying to picture this, they're not the tightly curled like Princess Leia ram's horns. They're not the, the sticky mm-hmm. bun ram's horns. They're like the, the curling out like a corkscrew that you would use to open a bottle of wine. 
Then on the face, it has spectacles, like glasses, spectacles made of copper alloy. So they shine in a kind of different color than the rest of the face. And these spectacles may once have been gilded. So this is a helmet that fully encloses the head with front facing flaps that hinge open like a flower spreading its petals in the sunlight, you know, or like the face of the Demogorgon in, uh, in Stranger Things, you know, it's got the, the petals that open up. So it's got two side plates that hinge out to the right and the left. So imagine these would fold over sort of the the uh, the jaw area, the the sideburns, and they they flap out. And then the face plate hinges up over the forehead. And so you can open the flaps up like this and put the helmet on by sliding it over the back of your head. And then you close the plates around the sides in front of your head. Which I have to admit, is, it's kind of hard for me to picture just looking at a, a, an image of the helmet. Uh, I think most of the images, if not all the images you run across, are of the, the, the closed helmet as if it's being worn and it's sealed up. Yeah, actually, though, you can look it up on the, the Royal Armory's website. They've got a video with a curator at the museum there unfolding the flaps and showing you how Ooh, it works. Okay. So, so you can check that out on their website if you're interested. But so the front of the, the, the front plate on this helmet, the face plate, is carved with a level of intricacy that's almost kind of awkward. You know how when somebody like makes a parody of something, but they put way too much effort into it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if you look close at this faceplate, you will see these delicate wrinkles etched in around the eyes and stubble all around the mouth and lips and a texture that looks almost like pores across the cheeks and the nose. The expression on the face is really hard to describe. It's something, I, I guess the way I could come closest is to say it is a demonic rictus. Uh, it, yeah. it suggests I must scream, but my lips are stapled together, loosely stapled together, but stapled together. Yeah, I mean, it's it. Yeah, it is really hard to describe. Um, uh, certainly, yeah, the stubble is very interesting, especially in light of mustaches on uh, helms that we mentioned in the last episode, and and we'll come up again in this episode later. Uh, but yeah, this this expression, it's it it is hard to categorize because it it is intimidating there's this there is a sense of that when i look at this helmet i i cannot imagine thinking that anyone who would wear this um has good intentions like it, there's a <laughs> there's a vileness to it you know there, there's mm-hmm. the, the the mouth is making you, you get the impression it's making a sound kind of like a you know mm-hmm. it's a it, there's a, 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 a goblin-esque aspect to it I will say that the, the the expression on the mouth of this face reminds me of some of the faces that Willem Dafoe pulls in some of his various villainous roles. You know, <laughs> yeah. this kind of intense, um, gremlinoid kind uh-huh. of a smile, but but not necessarily a happy smile or not a happiness that is shared by other people in the room. Yeah. It's, it's like part gremlin or goblin, part mad scientist and part Willem Dafoe in streets of fire. <laughs> uh, but so apparently after the English civil war, so this would be about a hundred years after Henry VIII's death, uh, after the English civil war, most of the rest of Henry's armor was discarded. It was you know used for scrap metal, but for some reason, this helmet, this, this, this grotesque, bizarre horned helmet was preserved. And it's quite possibly just because it looked so weird. You know, you can almost kind of imagine Oliver Cromwell finding this and thinking like, yes, okay, this is an accurate representation of the monarchy. <laughs> 
But another thing is something that we talked about in the last episode, which is the dual use of helmets. Uh, helmets that you know, you might wonder, like, would this actually be very useful in battle? Or, you know, if it was actually designed to protect the head in battle, wouldn't it wouldn't it be kind of different than it is? And this is another one of those helmets where it's just hard to imagine it being very practical for a fighting scenario. It's got the right. curling horns, which just scream, you know, grab me, knock me, use me as a lever. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this this intuition that we get from looking at this thing is, in fact, historically correct. Because this wasn't fighting armor. This was party armor. Um, I actually <laughs> found a similar looking, though less elaborate helmet in the online collection of the Swedish Royal Armory Museum. Because I was trying to find other examples of helmets kind of like this that were used as party armor or ceremonial armor instead of armor for battle. And uh, there's, so there's this helmet in the, the Swedish Royal Armory's collection that belonged to the Swedish king, Gustav Vasa, who lived from 1496 to 1560. And this helmet has everything. It's got a dorsal fin. It's got a carved mustache. <laughs> it's got splayed eye holes. It's got a grimace straight from hell. It does not have horns or spectacles, though. No, but it is it is a beauty. Uh, I do want to come back to the idea of of dress armor versus battle armor for a king, because I know some you know if you're not uh, you know super familiar with the the history of uh, of British royalty and battle, you might think, well, you know, why would Henry have any armor but uh, fancy armor for non combat events? Would a would a king have battle armor? So Henry lived 1491 through 1547. Uh, and it's worth to put that in context. Uh, King Richard III uh, died of his wounds on uh, August 22nd, 1485, and he was the last English king to die in battle. Um, so it, the, the idea of a king having battle armor, not entirely out of the question for that time period. No, not at all. And, uh, and you know, Richard III is not even thought of as an especially, like, you know, he's not thought of as a warrior king usually, but no, he rode straight into battle. He was trying to kill Henry Tudor, who was attacking him to usurp the throne. And uh, he, he yeah. was like literally in there in the fight himself. But just to reference what the Swedish Royal Armouries Museum says about the, the helmets with faceplates like this, you know, they say that around the 16th century, it was popular for wealthy elites like kings and other uh, nobility in Europe to wear armor, including close helmets, to wear these things to celebrations, parades, big parties. And in the early 16th century, they say that it was common to wear these with, quote, grotesque visors in the form of animal or human faces, like this one, the one we were talking <laughs> about a minute ago, to enhance the festive atmosphere and heighten the sense of theatricality. So I guess it's possible to some extent that the weirdness of these faceplate grotesques, like King Henry's horned helm or King Gustav's weird-looking face mask here, it's not just that something is being lost in translation across time, language, and culture. It's possible that some of them were supposed to look weird. They were supposed to look funny. Yeah, it's like a masked ball, only a, a lot more clanky. But when you really look into the significance of the visual features, Henry VIII's horned helmet gets even weirder. So I just want to mention a couple more facts that are brought up by the Royal Armouries collection. One is that 
I mentioned the faceplate has spectacles, right? These cover the mm-hmm. eye holes. So there are eye holes in the faceplate, and then these spectacles descend down from a hinge at the bridge of the nose. And that might look kind of weird to us today, but this actually was a common format for spectacles at the time. They would kind of have a rivet in between these two separate arms that each went to one lens, and it would fold down over the bridge of the nose. So you can kind of clip it on your nose. But on the mask, there's no indication that these spectacles ever held lenses. So it appears they were decorative rather than functional. But why would you have decorative spectacles without lenses? Hmm. I mean, the, the, the immediate answer that would come to mind as well, if you, if you had spectacles on a lot or you used them and they were part of your identity, then you might want them replicated in the same way that people who have, like, for instance, worn gla- uh, eyeglasses for a long time and then have um, a LASIK uh, surgery might still keep some glasses with just plain uh, glass as lenses just because that's part of their look. That's possible. I I don't think spectacles were really considered part of Henry's look, especially when he was young. Uh, Mm. There's another thing they point out that that might be the answer here. Apparently, spectacles were an accessory that in the 16th century – often appeared in renderings of the stock character from from culture at the time known as the fool. So I, I guess something kind of like the Shakespearean fool, right? Like touchstone mm-hmm. in As You Like It. Oh, okay. So, well, on one hand, this is, of course, disappointing because it sounds a bit like it's it, it's essentially like a nerd joke, right? It's like making <laughs> making fun of the very important individuals at the time who at the time were, were using them to get a lot of work done for the crown. And here you're just going to turn it around and uh, use it as a, a goofy trope because glasses look funny. So it's possible that this is just a costume of the fool in the sense that a lot of times these uh, fest- there would be festivals in which the fool is made king. Uh, this is kind of perhaps a play on that. That's possible. Here's another thing in that column. If Henry's helmet was supposed to make him look like a fool, that would also possibly explain the horns. Now, we mentioned in the last episode that horns had appeared on European decorative helmets in times gone by, but... By the 16th century, a human depicted with horns had negative connotations, often either demonic connotations or connotations specifically of cuckoldry. And this gets really interesting for a for a brief diversion that really does come back to the helmet. So I was reading an article by a scholar named Una McKilvena, who is a historian at the University of Melbourne, and she argues that there was something of a popular obsession in the early modern period with cuckoldry, this bizarre paranoia pulsing through European culture during the Renaissance about wives cheating on their husbands. And this shouldn't come as any surprise given the sexual politics of the time. Right, yeah. So obviously there's a lot of uh, paternalism and misogyny rolled up into this. There was this idea that women were more lustful than men and less rational, less in control of their actions, and that they could lose control of their behavior and commit scandalous acts of infidelity. And as a result, a married man, by virtue of being married to a woman, was constantly at risk of being humiliated by her cheating on him. 
Uh, and this state of humiliation was expressed through the imagery of invisible horns on the head. This imagery shows up in Shakespeare in, in several different ways. For example, in Much Ado About Nothing, there's a character named Benedict who's being cynical about marriage. And Benedict says basically, hey, if I ever get married, I might as well, quote, pluck off the bull's horns and set them in my forehead. The idea is that he's like, what's the point? As soon as you get married, a woman will cheat on you and then you'll have these horns. Now, it's not known exactly where this link between horn imagery and sexual humiliation comes from, uh, but there are several theories. She mentions a few. Some have to do with various types of castrated domestic animals, such as the ox, which has horns, of course, or the capon, which is a, a castrated male chicken. It was once common, apparently, to engraft the spurs from the legs of a capon into its comb so that it could be told apart from the other roosters. And maybe this had something to do with it, but we don't know for sure where this imagery comes from. But here we tie it back in with the spectacles, because apparently during the early modern period, there were also popular associations between cuckoldry imagery and the stock character of the fool. So sometimes the fool might have been depicted with spectacles. Other times the fool might have been depicted with horns. Oh, okay. So so it all, again, could be part of just sort of the, the, the trope cartoon character of the day for the fool. Possibly. So, I, I mean, it just makes me wonder, like, Maximilian, what are you trying to say with this gift, man? <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 it sounds like either just a, it, it really depends on uh, to what extent you get Henry's sense of humor, uh, because this, is, this would be kind of a dangerous gift to give a king unless you knew he was really into this. Right. Uh, yeah. And I want to be clear that I don't mean to suggest that uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I was insinuating anything about Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon at the time or anything like that. But it is interesting that this elaborate gift helmet includes elements that exist in this nexus of association with the character of the fool. So, yeah, it must suggest either – uh, I don't know he's, he, that he thinks maybe Henry is going to have a good sense of humor and will dress up in fool's armor for ceremonial occasions. I don't know. There is also a, it really stinks of luxury, too, to have a, a, a helmet like this. And helmets, as we've discussed in the previous episode, uh, you know, these are they're well-crafted um, uh, implements of, of battle. Like they, these are expensive items. And to have one that for many reasons is is non-functional and could even be something that would never be worn because it's something of a, but you know, perhaps like a, a white elephant gift, uh, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe that that's part of the, uh, the appeal of this helmet as well. I'm wondering if it was kind of the horse head mask of the early 1500s. Oh man. So yeah, if they, if they could do selfies, like this would be a uh -huh. helmet you'd wear for your selfie. Right. Now, speaking of, um, goofy helmets uh, from uh, the medieval uh, period uh, specifically. Um, one that uh, I think a lot of us have seen uh, many times, and it's always kind of puzzles you on some reason, is the Houndskull helmet, which comes from the German Hundsgugel uh, or, or a hound's hood, or sometimes translated as pig-faced helmet. Hmm. So it's not a, quite a horn, but this helmet has something that looks like a snout on the front of it. Um, you know, like the, the snout of, say, a, indeed a hound or a pig. It has a very bestial look to it. Uh, and it, you know, so it has a very transformative nature to it. You see these knights, uh, uh, in, uh, depictions of knights dressed in this armor, and they look kind of like beast men. 
Right. And this is a common theme that we talked about in the last episode, the, the zoomorphic mask or the therianthropic mask, the one that suggests transformation into an animal or having some kind of animal characteristics. Right. And and so this style of armor also looks very goofy. It gets it has kind of a spy versus spy feel, you know, with like the pointed mm-hmm. nose. Yes. Uh, very cartoony. Uh, so it, it, it raises the question, why do we see this design? And indeed, why was this an extremely popular um, uh, form of the design. This is not something where you just saw a few examples of, you know, relegated to the, the you know, the, the the fancy affairs of a king. No, this was this was a legit battle armor, and it was it was uh, pretty widespread um, uh, throughout medieval Europe. Um, Let me guess, it was a beak for pecking the enemy. <laughs> it does kind of look like it. It looks kind of uh, you know offensive in that regard, but it turns out it did have uh, two uh, key purposes. So first of all. Breathing is always uh, an issue in a helmet like this. You know, you put some sort of big metal contraption over your head. Well, you still need to see out of it and you still need to breathe. Well, if you just have a, 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 a like a, a flat uh, face mask in front of you, there are only so many holes, so many um, uh, vents you can put in that thing to allow you to breathe. But if it is elongated like this, uh, then that allows for even more breathing holes. So it depends on what example you pull up. Sometimes you pull up, you find an example of uh, of this helmet, and uh, it doesn't look like they're really that many. Uh, they're not really taking advantage of this feature. But others have a lot of holes in them. It's, you know, essentially, it's almost like a wiffle ball. But uh, perhaps the more important aspect of this design was that its shape would deflect blows to the face. Hmm. Uh, So if your face is shaped like a cone, it is going to be harder for the enemy to land a spear or a sword in such a way that it's going to, you know, just break through and cut your face in half. Yeah, I see that. It's got a it's got a natural parrying formation. Yeah. So it and and I have to say it does also look kind of creepy and, and dehumanizing while also being kind of goofy. Uh, you know, you'll also see lower slits in some of these helmets. Uh, so there'll be like the upper eye slit, like clearly for 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 viewing. And then there's a lower slit that kind of looks like a mouth. Mm-hmm. And I was reading about this in History of Armor, eleven hundred through seventeen hundred by Paul F. Walker. And the author points out that most of these uh, lower slits were probably intended to allow the knight to look down, which makes us. Again, think of the the movement limitations and the vision limitations in a helmet like this. How are you going to see what's going on below you, say, in your lap on the horse or whatnot? Um, you know, are you going to do a full body movement to look down or do you need essentially lower windows in your head cage so that you can see what's going on down there? I see. Now, we talked about this in the last episode, too, the idea that when you're designing armor and especially helmets, you're often at a you're working with trade offs, right? You know, you've got the level of Mm -hmm. protection versus what kind of limitations come along with that protection. Sometimes it might be limitations in mobility, especially for types of armor on the body. But with uh, helmets and armor on the head, you're going to have limitations to the senses. That's right. So uh, apparently this was a pretty successful design, though. Um, uh, Walker writes that the style here became universally used across Europe during the 14th century. uh, And a lot of those were lost, but a few survive today. So if you do a a little bit of image searching uh, around online for uh, hound skulls or or Hoon's Google uh, helmets, you'll find some really interesting examples. All right. Well, I guess we need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. All right, we're back. So in the previous episode, we we mentioned the helm of the samurai in passing. 
But there's just way too much beauty and complexity uh, in samurai tradition to leave it at that. So I, wa- I wanted to go into it a bit more, in a bit more detail, on what we're really looking at when we behold examples of samurai armor, especially samurai helms, which have to rank among the most elegant military helmets ever created. Mm-hmm. Some of them are so beautiful and look so delicate, I would be afraid to touch them. Yes, yeah. They, and and really, they, they're an art... Uh, unto themselves uh, that also makes searching up examples of it kind of difficult because people continue to create riffs on samurai armor and samurai helmets. And at times it it becomes a challenge to figure out, okay, am I looking at uh, an actual military helmet? Am I looking at this kind of showy military helmet that's more or less in line with the the sort of fancy dress helmets, uh, you know, a status symbol? Or mm-hmm. am I looking at something more recent, something that is a, uh, you know, a, a purely modern artistic flourish that is playing on samurai identity? Um, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a whole world of design here. But to, to go back to sort of the beginning, you know, what, what is a samurai? Uh, just to refresh everybody, this was the Japanese warrior class, which originally uh, denoted the, the bushi or uh, aristocratic warriors, but eventually referred to all members of the warrior class. They came to power in the 12th century, and they held power till the, the Meiji Restoration in 1868. They grew out of the uh, Kamakura period, which would have been uh, 1192 through uh, uh, 1333, uh, taking the pre-existing refinement of the imperial court and transforming it through a unique mix of military skill, warrior ethos, and stoicism. So you have elements of Zen Buddhism, Confucian thought, filial piety, and Shinto mixed together into this, uh, this code of the Bushido, which by the 19th century also became just an ethical blueprint for Japanese society itself. Now, that's not to say that the details of Bushido were set in stone, as it did drift depending on external influences, such as the influence of the aforementioned, uh, um, you know, outside philosophies. Mm Mm-hmm. So the samurai were loyal to specific feudal lords to an all-consuming uh, degree. Uh, The warrior's honor, purpose, and life were all bound uh, to these individuals. So, of course, there's this long history of samurai armor, and its story is one of just design, evolution, continual tinkering, artistic embellishments, and at times archaic revival. Uh, and you basically see all of these in other armor, armor traditions as well. Mm-hmm. But some of the earliest examples can be examined in terracotta figurines and grave goods from the, the tumulus period from uh, CE 250 through 552, which shows us this uh, uh, the scaled armor that is, uh, we just touched on this briefly in the the previous episode that is predominantly Chinese in its design, but with few purely Japanese flourishes. Those would follow. Uh, This this is according to Samurai and Illustrated History uh, by Mitsuo Kuri. Now, Curry points out that this armor style resembles Chinese uh, Tang and Song style uh, lamellar armors, and that whether the Japanese ruling class of the day you know, originally migrated from northern Asia, or if native Japanese borrowed or imported foreign fighting techniques and technologies, uh, whichever it may be, it's still a controversial question. Uh, but the, the helms would have been either peaked or beaked, according to Curry. Now, explain to me the difference there. So uh, basically, there's going to be either uh, it's going to be kind of almost like a cone at the top, you know, mm-hmm. or it's going to come out um, almost like the bill of a cap. OK, that makes sense. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, not just you know, I guess it would also uh, protect your eyes from the sun, but also it would help shield your face from blows. 
But this is just essentially the beginning. Uh, Curry's book is an excellent read if you want an in-depth history of the various styles of samurai armor. And indeed, there are so many fascinating additions and add-ons that end up making up this armor. Again, there's this continuous evolution. Uh, and, and also, given the modular aspects of well, a lot of armor traditions, but especially samurai armor, it gets even more intricate because you'll see like the addition of a, of a, of a neck guard here, the refinement of cheek guards uh, over here, and then and also the evolution of just like the purely uh, artistic aspects of it. Mm-hmm. But as far as the helmet itself goes, uh, here are a few interesting facts that, that Curry gets into. So first of all, uh, the top of the helmet bowl features a small four-centimeter uh, hole called a hachimanza that apparently had a dual purpose. So first of all, it, provi- it provided ventilation, uh, uh, helping you breathe a little better in the, in the helmet. Um, but uh, it also allowed the warrior's top-knot hairstyle to be drawn up through it. And uh, what's interesting here is that this helped steady the helmet. Uh, Plus, the earlier helmets had no inside liner, and they were only fixed to the head by the chin cord and the top knot. I have never heard before of your actual organic hair being used to secure a helmet in place, but that is a brilliant idea. Yeah, as long as the hairstyle uh, matches up with that. Right. Because apparently during the 13th and 14th centuries, hairstyles changed toward a looser style. And there was growing concern as well that the holes now only benefit of ventilation was overshadowed by the fact that it provided a weak point for arrows when the warrior charged head down at adversaries. Mm. So by the 15th century, it goes away as an actual hole, but you still retain an exterior decorative flourish that attests to its previous existence, uh, kind of a decorative grommet. Um, because also it, it had other ideas, uh, other ideas were bound up in it as well. There's this notion that the hole allowed the 98,000 gods of war to enter into the warrior. And in fact, the fact that the name Hachimanza apparently comes from the name Hachiman, which was a, a patron god of war, a Shinto god who embraced Buddhism. And I was reading about this, uh, or actually I was uh, listening uh, to uh, uh, Anthony Cummins, uh, an author and translator on uh, samurai arms, armor, and the tactics of warfare, who also host a series of informative videos on YouTube about the topic. So by designing the helmet this way, the idea was that the gods of war could sort of enter into the warrior and inhabit them and give them strength in battle or guide their actions? Yeah, or at least that was sort of the... um the philosophical um, ideas that were attached to this hole, though mm. it seems like it was mostly for the hair. And certainly when you begin, become concerned that, that it's going to be a hole through which arrows will enter the warrior, it seems like everyone was, was pretty much on board with the idea of sealing it up with something. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, it makes you think about all these different aspects of inventions that dwell for a long time in culture where they might have originally had a functional purpose, but then over time as the functional purpose goes away. Uh, I wonder if people are more inclined to read religious or, or cultural significance into that, that element of the invention. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things people do is we brood over our objects. We attach and assign meaning to the things that we create and the details of it. And sometimes those, those are the things that live on well past the functionality of a particular uh, element of the design. 
It makes me think of like church bells, for instance, that were once functional and signaling times of day for for worship or just for timekeeping in a locality. And then over time yeah. just came to mean more. It was just something that is part of what a church is, even though it's not everybody's got a clock now. Yeah. Uh, shutters on houses. Another example, you know, uh, yeah. how often do you see shutters actually uh, closed on windows unless you're dealing with, say, like a beach house or something? A lot of times you'll see examples of this where the shutters either are never used or may even be incapable of being used. It's you know, purely decorative flourish. Yeah, it's interesting. So the main bowl of the, the helmet, or kabuto here, uh, was, was the hachi. And you have the, the plated neck guard. This was the uh, shikoro, which is made of overlapping plates. And then you have a, a brim or a visor as well, which I, I kind of mentioned already. But then uh, if you ever look at a sam- samurai helmet, you'll often see these wing-like or ear-like backwards folding flaps. And uh, these were uh, these were known as the fukagashi, and these were the front parts of the neck guard, but they became folded back like this to enhance visibility and to prevent getting in the way of drawing a bow. So another example of the, the evolution of the helmet being, to a certain extent, uh, uh, aesthetic, but also purely functional. Okay. And then you have the Sunamoto, and this is the this is in the front. It's a mounting point uh, on the front of the helmet, and where you might have horns or antlers or a flower motif or something like that. That added. Now, something else that you see with a lot of these helmets is that they don't just cover the top and sides of the head, but they, like a lot of the other helmets we've been talking about today, have a face mask. Yeah, and this is often one of the most uh, you know arresting aspects of the samurai helmet, and one that you know, clearly resonates. Uh, in our in fiction around the world. I mean, you look at, say, the, the Darth Vader's helmet, and there mm-hmm. is a, a strong samurai element in its design. Oh, was it? Do you know if it was directly inspired by samurai helmets? Uh, well, I, was, I looked this up the other day, and it seems like that has been cited as one of the influences, though there are a couple others, like there's some uh, old sci-fi serial with a helmeted bad guy that may have uh, played a role. Uh, you know, some uh, others have pointed to Doctor Doom as another uh, likely influence, but it seems like the samurai aesthetic was part of the influence for sure. I do think George Lucas was uh, was a fan of Japanese cinema, wasn't he? Like, uh, oh the, yeah, definitely. Yeah. He's, he's definitely cited uh, Kurosawa as an influence for sure. So, so yeah, I think when you see Darth Vader, you're, you're definitely seeing some samurai influence there. Yeah. Uh, now, on the samurai helmets, of course, they, these these masks often take on the likeness of a human face, though often with very aggressive flourishes. Also, you'll fl- frequently find mustaches that have been added. Uh, a lot of times, they're kind of like you know, brush based. They're, 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 you know, or made with horsehair or something. Uh, so they're, they, they actually have a bristly aspect to them. Oh man, that's so much better than the metal mustache of Sutton who and all these others. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, one, one thing to note ab- about the face mask of the samurai is that there are actually several different, uh, varieties. So, uh, there's the, the hapuri, which Curry writes date back to the Heian period of 794 to 1185. And they covered the foreheads and the cheeks in a kind of upside down U shape. You don't see that as much when you just get, you know, look for sort of stereotypical uh, samurai armor. Mm-hmm. Uh, far more prevalent in just standard uh, samurai iconography is the partial face mask or minpo, which emerged in the 14th or 15th centuries to provide protective coverage for the lower face uh, that was apparently lost by some of the design trends that were affecting other aspects of the helmet. So this would have covered like basically from the eyes uh, down to the chin. And sometimes there's a scaled neck guard hanging below this. 
Another variety was the, the hanbo, which covered the nose to chin area as well, but not the cheeks. Now, you'll also see examples of the soman, which covered the entire face. And some of the examples of this are very uh, uh, beautiful as well. But apparently, this was not a popular choice, as it was uh, said to be uncomfortable to wear. Uh, so I guess, you know, just more constricting of, of your face and uh, perhaps uh, limiting your, your, your senses a bit. Now, the overall look and feel of the helmet was, was sometimes crafted to represent something about the warrior's character, such as through an animal motif, and samurai tended to, to like to stand out from the crowd. Um, in uh, the book uh, Samurai, 1550 through 1600, uh, author Anthony J. Bryant points out that for early samurai, crests were a privilege of rank. Uh, these uh, date mono were mounted on the front, sometimes on the sides, taking the form of dragonflies, butterflies, crescent moons, discs, horns, various emblems, etc. Uh, and they were mostly uh, made of wood or paper mache even uh, that had been painted and affixed to the helmet, which I think is interesting because you're getting into this area where okay, there's the the purely functional aspects of the helmet that are going to be made of more durable material. But indeed, if you're going to have some sort of, uh, you know, flourish affixed to the top of your helmet, it it makes more sense, really, that you would have it constructed of paper mache or wood or something and not be a a physical part of the helmet that would, uh, again, you know, send your your helmet flying or twist your neck around if it were to catch a, a stray sword blow. I, yeah, that's extremely smart, actually. Paper mache adornments could be, they, they can still be seen, they can convey the same symbolism, but they can't become a lever. Yeah. They just rip right off. Yeah, so it seems like that, that would be a key advantage here. Now, in terms of um, this sort of tug of war between aesthetics and uh, and, and just a utilitarian purpose, uh, I, you certainly see things perhaps going more in the direction of uh, of just uh, aesthetics when you consider the kawari kabuto or the changed helmets or unusual helmets, and these are the more elaborate examples of samurai helmets you'll you'll come across and some of the most beautiful uh they were they were expensive so only the the wealthy were able to have them unless they claimed them on the battlefield uh, uh, from a fallen samurai but these would have been highly decorative helmets with unique shapes or even the, like the overall likenesses of an animal so instead of there being just this you know, this wooden paper mache flourish added to the front of the helmet, like the helmet itself would be transformed like a parade float into uh, an animal or with an enormous animal motif affixed to the top of it. So like the entire thing is the body of a, of a fish or some kind of yokai or something. Yeah, there's a pretty great fish-based one uh, that I've seen images of, and there's also a really uh, beautiful one from the 17th century that apparently is in the the the, the Mets collection. Uh, I don't think it's currently on display or, or hasn't been recently, but uh, it, it's beautiful because it looks like this black cresting wave. Uh, it's it's just elegant to behold. And also kind of shiny black. It looks a lot like uh, like the material of Darth Vader's helmet. Yes, it does. Yeah, this one's very Darth Vader-y. And it's almost, uh, it's almost got like a scorpion's tail aspect curling up at the top. Yeah. So there's, a, there's tons more we could talk about with some samurai helmets and samurai armor. We've only really uh, touched the, you know, the tip of the iceberg here. For an example of just how many varied designs you come across, I was, I was reading Samurai Armor, the Wantabi Art Museum Samurai Armor Collection, Volume 1 by Trevor Absalon and David Thatcher. And they, uh, the authors here point out that the uh, Kawari Kabuto encompasses 
so many different variations. That, like, for instance, there's this one that they, they pull out. It's a design from the uh, mid-late uh, Edo period that has this horned helmet, a horned samurai helmet, but then over it is this hood. So this is hood in place, and then the horns are sticking out through the fabric of the hood. So that's just another example of the rich variety you'll find with these helms. Joe, can you pull up a, an image of this on I, your side? I'm looking at it right now. This is cult movie material. This is so good. So the the hood, yes, the hood has holes. The horns come through the holes. It's like little sleeves for your horns. Uh, it's so creepy looking. And then the face mask, it has not just a bristly mustache, but a whole bristly beard. Uh, and this is great because like, if you, if you were to try to kiss somebody wearing this mask, you would feel the bristles, <laughs> but a legitimately creepy and beautiful design. Yeah, th this is awesome. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. When we come back, we're going to discuss, uh, just a, a few more examples of, of helmet design from around the world and throughout history. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, I know you wanted to mention a bit about, uh, pre-Columbian cultures in Mesoamerica and South America. Yeah, I mean, we've discussed um, the Inca civilization on the show before, as well as aspects of uh, Aztec civilization. And especially when we were talking about the Inca, we talked about their amazing fiber-based technologies. Mm -hmm. um, I, I believe we talked a lot about their use of knots, as well as their use of things like elaborate rope bridges. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also played into how they constructed their body armor and their helmets. So the Inca depended on quilted and padded cotton tunics for body armor with wooden plates added in places, especially the, the back, I understand. And likewise, their helmets were mostly wooden, though apparently generals or other prestigious individuals might have theirs decorated with a little bit of copper as well. Now, you might wonder, like, wait a minute, why would wool be all that useful for armor? But, I mean, think about helmets and, and pads of today that, say, a football player would wear or that you might wear if you're riding a bicycle. These often involve a lot of kind of soft padding elements, which are quite useful if you suddenly get hit on the head or hit somewhere in the body, is that, that you know, they might not stop a sword from stabbing you, but they can slow the acceleration or deceleration of impacts, which makes a big difference in, in protecting your body from injury. Right. So even if you are going to have some sort of robust plating on your body, you also want some sort of um, uh, some, some sort of material there to help absorb the blow as well. Because uh, otherwise, yeah, the, the sword might not break the skin, but the impact of the sword might uh, break several bones. Right. So uh, uh, that's just the Inca in brief, but uh, also I was looking around at the, the Aztec. According to Handbook to Life in the Aztec World by Manuel uh, Aguilar Moreno, the Aztecs also utilized similar cotton tunic body armor, and war leaders would wear feathered tunics over these. So uh, as far as their helmets go, the helmets varied. Some were made from wood and bone and decorated with feathers. Others were far more animalistic, uh, made in the likeness of a wild animal of divine significance and associated with different warrior groups such as wolves, coyotes, jaguars, and pumas. And, the, and in these masks, the warrior would gaze out of the animal's open mouth. And these were generally supported over a frame of wood or quilted cotton. Yeah, and it's worth looking up examples of these. A couple of the ones that come to my mind are the jaguar warriors and the eagle yeah. warriors. The jaguars and the eagles were like different classes of uh, military combatants in the in the ancient Aztec or Mexica culture. Yeah, with a lot of uh, 
sacred associations with these animals. So it wasn't just like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I looked like a jaguar? Or wouldn't I be intimidating? Like it, it went deeper to that and was more uh, entrenched in a um, uh, in, in a, a sacred battle um, uh, ethos. But I wanted to to also uh, talk about another far flung example of helmet technology, and that is the helmet that you would find. Uh, uh, used by the Hawaiian people. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I do want to stress that there's so many different variations in warrior helms throughout human history. And there's there's a lot of sameness to a certain degree. You see fabric, fiber, leather, and hide helms across all cultures. Bone and wood are frequently taken up as are metals, as metallurgical advancements and, um, you know, and, and also the local environment allow. But uh, but th- these are a couple of reasons why it's really neat to look at um, Polynesian technology and specifically uh, Hawaiian helmets. So I would love to come back at some point and do a proper look at Polynesian technology because the various cultures at this far-flung tip of human expansion uh, are and were really amazing and advanced in ways utterly befitting of their challenges. So here's one of the interesting things about, about Hawaiian uh, warriors. So given the complete absence of iron on the volcanic islands, the ancient warriors of Hawaii were instead masters of wooden spears, slings, wooden forks and daggers. Sometimes they had these two-pronged eye daggers, as well as these unique shark tooth weapons for close quarters combat. They kind of looked like, uh, in some cases, they look kind of like paddles or, or kind of like wooden uh, daggers, but they're lined around the edges with um, these saw blades made of shark's teeth uh, so that if you get in close enough, you know, you can uh, essentially, you know, uh, gut your enemy or, uh, or you know, slice a, a vital part of their anatomy. They also had strangling cords that sometimes featured shark teeth as well. And all of this would would have been additionally incorporated into specialized tactics and specialized martial arts. As far as protection goes, according to Warrior Arts and Weapons of Ancient Hawaii by Sid Campbell, the warrior chieftains of old would wear a brightly colored cape into battle, often slung on one arm to deflect or snag spears. He writes, uh, quote, Though these decorative capes looked more ceremonial than martial to foreigners unaccustomed to the Kia's battle accoutrements, they proved very effective. In instances of close-range combat, which were frequent, where clubs and shark-toothed daggers were commonplace, the cape used as a shield could also be a protective barrier to enshroud, deflect, parry, or confine the enemy's weapon. This reminds me of some of the earliest examples of body armor that we talked about in the last episode, which uh, depicted on the royal standard of Ur, I think it was, where these ancient Mesopotamian warriors are shown wearing heavy leather capes as armor into battle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think in the last episode, too, we we had a brief tangent where we talked about the capes worn by Darth Vader and Count Dooku and General Grievous in the, the Star Wars films. Uh, and there, so certainly there's historical precedence uh, for the use of capes as armor in close combat. And in the Star Wars universe, on top of that, they have this idea that uh, you have these garments made out of armor weave, which would be capable of uh, dissipating blaster bolts or at le- and at least providing limited resistance to lightsabers. And, and I do want to stress again that there, there would have been an entire martial arts at play here in the use of these various weapons and this protective cape. Now, they also had helmets that they, w- they would use, and there are at least uh, two examples of, of it. So first of all, there's this uh, gourd mask helmet design that uh, 
Uh, it was traditionally known as uh, makakai or makini, I believe, and they're also they've also been commonly referred to as ike uh, ike, uh, I believe. It's a, it's actually a popular cultural motif today. So if you if you do some image searches for this, or um, you know, or or do any amount of driving uh, around the Hawaiian Islands, you will you will see examples of this uh, where it is like a, to describe it. It's kind of like a a gourd shape with. Um, kind of a big hourglass shape cut into the front, allowing uh, uh, one to, to, to look out and also exposing uh, cheeks and nose region. There's often kind of a, uh, a feather-based um, um, kind of a mohawk or crest on the back of it. And then you'll also have some material hanging down uh, from the edges covering the neck. Yeah, a lot of the examples I've seen involve not a single space in the front of the face, but with two whole separate eye holes. So I guess you could do it multiple ways. But the a lot of the ones I've seen, they end up making you look kind of like Jack Skellington. Yeah, there is kind of a. I think that's one of the reasons that it's such a, an interesting image and one that uh, that that, uh, that that people keep coming back to. I mean, aside from its 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 cultural relevance, it also has this kind of skull like quality. It feels it you know if you're coming at it from a sci fi direction, it almost feels like a space helmet. And also being gourd based, it it it's a little it's a little different. It it. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a different tradition, a different way of uh, of covering the head and protecting the head. And apparently, this would have been a design that uh, the, the very first European uh, explorers to arrive in Hawaii would have observed uh, various warriors wearing. Now, there's also another variety of helmet, and these would have been more um, uh, artistic uh, and more just uh, purely for for show. Uh, but there would have been a, a crested uh, helmet known as uh, mehole, and these would have been um, uh, uh, made of uh, aerial vine roots that were woven into kind of a basketry frame, so kind of a, a wicker helmet that was then decorated with feathers, again, with this kind of crested uh, uh, appearance to them that reminds, I think, would easily remind a, a you know, a Westerner of various Greek helmets or some of the, um, uh, the the headgear that is associated with Tibetan monks. Yeah, it certainly looks very elaborate and regal. I mean, you see somebody wearing this and it does suggest that they are in charge. But there's something yeah. also about the images I've seen of this type of helmet, the texture on the outside, I'm not sure if that's original. It might be a, a sign of, of wear or weathering over time. It looks kind of like coral. I know it's not made of coral, but it's got that fuzzy pink kind of texture on the outside. Yeah, well, like the, the use of feathers in this uh, hel- helmet, uh, for example, um, if you're not, if you haven't seen a picture of it, you may be thinking of something that is very feather, like enormous feathers. But a lot of these look to be very small feathers, which creates a oh, almost kind of a, a, a furry appearance. It, it looks like it's something made from the fur of some sort of fabulous uh, multicolored mammal uh, that that we just uh, don't know about. Kind of sponge-like, almost like uh, yeah. you, you might imagine that if you were to touch the helm, it would sting you. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, just another example of uh, the various materials and designs that have been used to, uh, to cover uh, the human skull, to enhance protection for the human skull, but also transform the human body uh, to create uh, some different idea of who we are and what our status is in a given culture. Robert, I have enjoyed this helmet journey. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. And of course, we, we only got to touch base on, on, 
on so few examples. I mean, there there's so many other traditions, and and again, you people uh, have whole books about samurai armor or about you know the martial arts and uh, and armory and, uh, and and weaponry of say uh, uh, the Hawaiian people. So uh, I hopefully this episode will be more as a, more of a starting point for folks out there. If one of these examples really uh, perks your interest, then uh, look into it more uh, because there's a lot of, lot of cool material out there, a lot of uh, photography, uh, reconstructions uh, that, that really make it rewarding. Absolutely. Now, obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody about this. Uh, you know, if we've touched on a particular helmet that uh, is important to you culturally, we'd love to hear from you. Or if it's we've just touched on a topic that you have some additional uh, insight regarding, uh, perhaps you've worn some of these helmets, <laughs> tried them on, or tried on reconstructions of them, uh, we would love to hear from you about all of that. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of the show, you can find us wherever you get your podcast. And wherever that happens to be, if you have the ability to do so, uh, just rate, review, and subscribe because those are just some some small acts that help us out a lot in the long run. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 